0: Was as calm as a summer sea when silver moonlight beams, and then a new love beckoned me, wrecking my ship of dreams. old and the new Riptide Lost in a Riptide Where will it take me What shall I do My heart is tossed on a sea of emotion One love offers romance the other
1: devotion. When I came to, the back of my head was as tender as a plate of steak tartare at the Brown Derby. I sat on a chair in a dimly lit room that was crowded with junk. My hands were tied behind my back, my ankles were bound together. What was that noise? It sounded like a rustling. Or was it scratching? Then I heard squeaking. Three in the corner. They swiveled their heads in my direction. One stood up on its hind legs. The thing about rats is they don't scurry like mice. Mice move from one spot to another as fast as they can. Rats move on tiptoe like an elderly aunt who makes a midnight raid on the icebox. They're sneaky, but they're not afraid. Three huge rats came toward me. At a reflex, I picked my feet up off the floor. And then I looked down. That's when I saw a couple of links of liverwurst tied to the rope around my ankles. I had a little deli smorgasbord resting on my feet. And three hungry rats coming for a feast. I rocked back and forth on the chair trying to loosen the ropes. I leaned forward and slammed the chair down hard. I hoped the noise would scare them off. It didn't. One of the rats jumped on my foot. I kicked my leg and flung it across the room. He ran right back to me. Three rats were on me now. Their little hands gripped my ankles and feet. The teeth tore into the meat. My hands and legs shook. My temperature flared. My body felt like it was as hot as a wall of kelic lights. I screamed through the handkerchief wrapped around my mouth. I rocked back and forth violently, slamming the chair legs down hard, and suddenly, the chair snapped apart and collapsed, like a house of cards. I wiggled enough slack in the rope to get my hands free. Then I grabbed one of the chair legs and bludgeoned the rats. I panned the two of them flat and the third one slunk away into the corner. I threw the liverwurst across the room and untied my ankles. I was behind the wheel, roaring out of the Minerva parking lot, barreling down Fountain Avenue, when I realized I still had the gag in my mouth. I parked a block over and walked back to Kenmore Avenue in case anyone was on the lookout for my car. Maybe it wasn't the smartest move to go back to my bungalow, but I needed a shower before I could do anything else. I didn't want to wake my brothers up in the middle of the night either. I scrubbed myself under the scalding water until my skin looked like a boiled lobster. After I tiled off, I rubbed some iodine on the scratches and bite marks around my shins and ankles. I dressed quickly. I slipped on a bra and a pair of steppins. I took a brown and yellow dress out of the closet and put on a fresh pair of red espadrilles. I stuffed everything I had been wearing into a sack and dumped it in the bin at the back. Mentally, I was doing the same with the memories from the night before, of being tangled up with Winston and his suite on the Yale. I thought of him naked, kneeling in front of me, I pushed the image down in the dark and put a lid on it. It was after two o'clock in the morning. I needed a drink. I drove to a speakeasy near Paramount. I took a seat at the end of the bar and ordered a gimlet. Gina was sitting next to Reggie Fitz inside a booth. Maybe I was catching a break.
2: Hey, you Lou. How are you getting on? What are you having?
1: Thanks, Reggie. I just ordered at the bar. You having a good night, you two?
2: We needed a bracer after what happened.
1: Come again?
0: Didn't you hear?
2: I was tied up earlier. What did I miss? Poppy's in the hospital. Somebody bounced her off the furniture in her dressing room.
0: And Larry Evans is dead.
2: That makes three men in one week who join the church triumphant. The boss, cameraman, and a set designer. The star takes a ride in a meat wagon.
0: Your language is so raw. It's perfect, my sweet.
2: <laughs> Why sugarcoat it? Who beat up Poppy? Any guesses, Lou?
1: The husband. It's, it's always the husband.
2: Hey, how did Larry snuff it? They said it was an accident. He lost his balance on a ladder in the studio, fell and broke his neck.
1: Same night Poppy got bashed up?
2: Sounds fishy.
1: As a Lenten Friday.
0: Who would want to kill Larry?
1: Might have something to do with what happened on the night boat. I tried to ask you about it before, Reggie, you remember? Only... When we met on Friday, I would have asked the wrong questions.
2: Hard to tell who knows what out here
0: sometimes, or why they want to know.
2: What are you two talking about? I don't follow.
0: You heard about Madeline?
2: Just heard the story
1: tonight. What happened to Madeline? Some of the fellas broke into her cabin on board the Yale, night of the rap party. Winston, Carl, and Larry. Seems like the picture business has become hazardous for dames.
2: Can't a gal keep the wolves from the door for one second?
3: This is a stick up. Empty the register or I'll shoot. Aw, uh, lay off. Have a drink and relax. Shut up or I'll put a new hole in your face. That's
0: no way to talk to a lady.
3: Don't try to be a hero. Better listen to the dame, buddy. I'd hate to change the part in your hair. Permanent, like. Say, that's a nice rock on your pinky finger. Hand it over. No. What you say?
0: I said no. The ring belonged to my wife. She's dead. You can't
3: have it. Give him the ring. Give it to me or else I'll blow your head off.
0: You'll have to kill me first.
2: No! Reggie, please, give it to him!
0: Come and get it, if you dare.
3: Glad to. My trigger finger's been itchy all night.
1: Drop it. That little pea shooter doesn't look like it can handle another blast. Probably jammed.
3: Ooh, a tough cookie, huh?
1: Beezark has six shots in the chamber. I'll unload every bullet in you if you don't blow. Now!
3: You ain't got the knife.
1: Famous last words. I'll give you till three. One. Two. (laughs) Call an ambulance! (laughs) Reggie kept his wife's ring, but he traded it for a bullet in the stomach. Gina rode with him in the ambulance. She was shaken up, her eye makeup ran down her cheeks. She wasn't acting. I followed them to the hospital in my car. Once Reggie was admitted, I left Gina with the nurses and went to find Poppy's room. Presbyterian Hospital was jumping with customers. I found a room on the third floor and paused at the door. I looked through the little glass window. Poppy was out cold. She wasn't alone. Irene Briar stood next to the bed. She smoothed Poppy's hair back, leaned over, and whispered in her ear. Irene held Poppy's hand. Now I knew why Irene hired me. She had something to hide. She was afraid of those letters her father received before he died. She was worried the letters told Briar about her affair with Poppy. That would make a juicy scandal in the papers. How is she? Uh, the doctors
4: gave her a shot. She was raving. She was terrified. She's terrified she have scars on her face that would end her career. Any witnesses? No. But it's not much of a mystery who did it, though.
1: He's beaten her before. I don't think he knew about you two. What are you talking about? Knew what? Irene, I saw you just now. Through the window when I walked in. You can't really hide it when you're in love with someone.
4: Keep your nose out of my personal business and do not tell me how I
1: feel. Can't handle any more guilt. It's not your fault. I wasn't trying to make you feel guilty. Winston hired me to find out who Poppy was seeing. He doesn't know it was you.
4: Does it matter? You'll still put Poppy in a hospital bed.
1: I don't think it had anything to do with you. Or the letters.
4: Is that supposed to make me feel better? Because I don't have to worry this minute that my love will be used against me? because I don't have to worry this time that my plans will be derailed because of some poison pen letters. Are you planning to take your father's place? Why shouldn't I? If I was his son, no one would question it.
1: You're absolutely right. Are you patronizing me? Not at all. I'm seeing things in a whole new light, frankly. I thought you were just another spoiled brat, I'll be honest. I didn't know you were serious about running the studio. I'm sorry, Irene. It's been a long weekend. My repartee is dragging. I meant to say that Winston probably attacked Poppy because of what she told me about what happened on the night boat. On the night boat? What what happened? I'll explain later. I'm still putting things together. Will you be here if I need to reach you? I'm not going anywhere.
2: Come on in, Lou. Glad you know it was me.
1: Burglars don't knock. You're the only person I know would pay me a visit at five in the morning. (sighs) Mind if I borrow your couch? Sure, if you fill me in. Looks like you had a full dance card. Seems like a week since I've seen you last.
0: I was a night boat. Talked to the crew?
1: Ah, not really. The candy butcher saw Poppy on a coke bender, she took a top off, and that's about all I got on board.
0: That's
5: it? What did you do the whole time? Mmm.
0: Well...
2: Good grief. You were knocking boots with some fella.
0: Well... So that story
5: about Poppy wasn't the only thing you got on board? Let me guess. A couple of
0: stiff drinks, and then a stiff...
1: Alright, that's enough. Out of you. I lost the run of myself, what can I say?
0: Who was he?
1: A big sailor in uniform. No, that wouldn't make me feel so bad. Um, I spent the night with Winston. I knew it. I knew you were hot for him. I had a weak moment. Uh Uh-huh. But it took longer than that. You know it isn't my policy to get mixed up with clients.
0: Into every woman's life must fall a six-foot-two devil. <laughs> Winston
1: is up to his neck in devilment. Oh? What kind? Assault. Rape. Murder.
0: He's
3: been a busy boy.
1: I sure can pick him. Two days ago, I had two cases, Kate. Find the letters, find the lover. Now the whole thing's blown wide open. Those letters are a red herring, and Poppy's extramarital affair is beside the point. What are you going to do? Serge him. I'm going to look for the woman. What woman? The one who was raped on the boat last month.
0: Get some shut-eye first. He'll figure it out, just like you always
1: do. Night, Lou. I couldn't put off ringing Winston forever, but it had to wait. I wasn't ready to deal with him yet. I tried to get a handle on things. I called Smitty and asked for a meeting outside the studio. We met in a coffee shop near my office on Highland. Let's skip the lecture portion of the meeting, shall we?
5: If you have no interest in what I have to say, why'd you ask to see me?
1: Why did we have to meet here instead of the studio? Poppy wasn't the only one attacked last night.
5: Poor Larry, another stiff on my hands.
1: Think he was attacked? Yeah, I'll bet the same person who beat up Poppy staged Larry's death to look like an accident. And another thing, last night I was jumped in the studio. Oh my god, what happened? On my way out, someone clobbered me. I woke up tied to a chair, three big rats in the room, and dinner strapped on my ankles. Where were you tied up? A few doors from the entrance. On the left, boxes of junk and furniture in the room. Hmm. Sounds like you were in a prop closet. You kept a cool head. I broke the chair and got loose, then I went home and showered and shoved everything I wore into the garbage can. I it was a prop chair. That's how come you could break it so easily. Remind me to raise a
5: toast to the gag man. You said you threw everything out. Don't tell me you bought a second pair of those dopey shoes. My shoes are cute.
1: <laughs> What's next? Where can I find Madeline Stone?
5: Why are you looking for Madeline?
1: Why aren't you?
5: Because I know where she is. She's in the Hopewell Clinic. Since when? Last month. Did you take her there? No. She sent a telegram. It said her nerves were frayed from the hours she put in. She needed a rest cure.
1: Rest cure? You bought that?
5: No one sends a wire when they need to dry out. It's done in Hollywood
1: code. Madeline didn't go up there to sober up.
5: No? Then why did she?
1: I thought you knew everything that went on in Minerva.
5: I usually do know everything that goes on in the studio. I guess by that smile on your face, you're in the catbird seat. You know something I
1: don't. I got a list. Madeline was attacked on the night boat when she sailed on the Yale for the backstage babes rap party by three men, and two of them were on Minerva's payroll. Those are the same two men who have recently followed your boss to the morgue. Carl Piedmont and Larry Evans. That's probably why she needs a quiet room. Who's the third mug? Winston Montgomery. He sailed with the rap party, although clearly didn't spend the night with his wife. Winston's behind this? If he styles himself as the next William Randolph Hearst, he wouldn't want something like this to get around. Winston might be willing to kill to cover up what he did on the night boat. He told me, and he beat his wife after, she told me. Then for kicks, he put a scare into me. Why didn't you tell me sooner? Well, at first, I wasn't sure if I could trust you. I thought you were on the Yale that night. I heard a well-dressed dame passed out $5 bills the next day to hush up a story about Poppy. Seems the studio's biggest star was busy sniffing powder and taking her top off. I thought you might have also hushed up what happened to Madeline. But then I realized it wasn't you on the boat. It was Irene Breyer. She was the one who covered for Poppy. Irene and Poppy are sharing a bed, in case you didn't know.
5: I didn't know about Madeline or Poppy and Irene. Listen, I sweep a lot of dirt under the carpet for the studio, but nothing like what happened to Madeline. You've turned into a fine detective. I'm impressed.
1: I appreciate that, Smitty. If it makes you feel any better, I acted like a fool on the Yale.
5: Cupid shot an arrow through your heart?
1: Uh, Let's say he aimed a little lower.
5: Mm, We've all given some random fella a tumble. Don't beat yourself up about
1: it. (sighs) I spent the night with Winston. Then
5: you are a sap. Of the highest order. My god, Lou. I know it. Don't tell me crooked men start your engine.
1: In fairness.
5: I didn't know he was a criminal until afterwards. Looks like we've both had weak moments. I'm not going to read you the riot act. Remind me to tell you about the time I was in New York and spent the weekend with Bugsy Siegel.
1: Now I'm impressed. Smitty on a spree with the biggest gangster in Manhattan? I didn't know you had it in yet. Finish your
5: coffee. Let's go. Hope well. We need Madeline to give a statement to the police. Then we can get Winston locked up.
1: The nurse at the front desk gave us the runaround. Little Miss Whitecap denied that Madeline had ever been a patient. But Smitty wasn't having it. Smitty adjusted the ermine scarf around her neck before she told Whitecap to ring the person in charge immediately or else she would make sure all the studios put a boycott on the clinic. It dawned on me that with a whole studio behind you, a woman could quickly get results. Whitecap got on the horn. Smitty took a seat and crossed her legs, and I paced the waiting room. There were three floral arrangements that powdered the room with a heavy scent, gladiolus and hyacinths. A low coffee table was decorated with ashtrays and Vanity Fair magazine. Framed press clippings about Hopewell's amenities hung on the walls. The clinic in Bel Air could have passed for a talent agency's waiting room, except no one really wanted to get further inside. I leaned closer to look at a photo on the wall. It was captioned, Banquet for the Board of Directors, 1932. Seated at a long table were mostly Pasadena dowagers with log nets and pearls around their necks mixed in with the Pasadena crowd were a few baldies and tuxedos. Smack in the middle of the charity set was the man I recently shared a pillow with. Winston Montgomery. I hey, ain't get a load of this. Our man is vice president of this joint.
5: Huh. Must be convenient to have a legitimate dumping ground. Makes all your troubles fade. A dame looks at him crossways and bingo. She's crazy. Just like that. I'd have to admire his racket if it didn't turn my stomach.
1: I've heard what happens in these places shock treatments, brain surgery. Poor souls are guinea pigs. Our conversation about what went on behind closed doors in Hopewell was interrupted by a doctor who was summoned to answer our questions. He admitted that Madeline had been a patient in the clinic. He said she checked herself out before Christmas. Madeline told the doctor she would be staying with her sisters in Santa Barbara. He found an address. He hoped Minerva Studio would continue to rely on Hopewell's services. Smitty shot him a look as if he puked on her suede pumps. We couldn't have beaten it faster out of that place. It felt about as lively as a funeral parlor before they wheeled out the corpse. I could smell the place in my hair, and I didn't like it one bit. A trip out to Santa Barbara was a bust. The sisters had a ramshackle cottage by the sea, torn lace curtains hung in the window and birds nested in the mailbox. The grass had grown knee-high. Either the doc gave us the wrong address, or they moved. On the way back, I asked Smitty about Madeline. It seemed as good a topic as any to pass the time. The more she told me about Madeline, the more I wanted to know. Turns out, we were the same age but Madeline had a head start on me career-wise.
5: Everybody in the studio has a file. Each file has run-of-the-mill biographical details, where they're from, family tree stuff, a list of their stage and screen credits, you know, all that. But some files have racier notes. Let's say if they had a secret marriage, hidden love child, if they ever made a stag reel, hit and runs, if they like the sauce too much, you get the drift. Madeline's file is quite the story. Better than some newspaper man from New York who keeps a flap bottle in his coat pocket, which is the usual screenwriter's profile. Now, most writers never shut up given the chance. And the way they boast if some fella added one line to a script and it's a hit, he preens around the studio like his name is carved on an Oscar. Well, Madeline's not like that. She doesn't say much. Maybe she's too busy taking mental notes about what people say, or the way they go on about their business. You would never hear her brag that she started writing scenarios when she was just 16, and for Metro nonetheless. They didn't know she was a kid, or a girl. She sent scenarios signed, M. Stone. Naturally, Mayer and Thalberg assumed she was a man, and they paid her 100 bucks for her first story she ever sent. That was a lot of dough for a teenager in 1925 didn't take long before the head of the studio and the head of production found out that she was a girl. But they hired her anyway, for 500 bucks a week. Soon she was making a thousand bucks a week, then two thousand. Madeline's stories were continental, sophisticated. She wrote women's pictures, and her stories proved to be very popular at the box office. But in 1926, there was a rift between the two men at MGM. They had both fallen in love with Madeline. Then came the blows. The file says there was even talk of a duel between Mayer and Thalberg. Supposedly, it would have been first blood, not to the death. They came to their senses and eventually called it off. Anyhow, they were obsessed with her beauty. Her long auburn hair, when she took it down, reached her waist. The men wrote memos about it back and forth. But how they could get Madeline to take off her hat and let down her long wavy hair... They waxed on and on about how her russet hair shone under the studio lights in cascading waves of Titian silk. Sometimes Mayer and Thalberg conspired and sent Madeline to the hairdressing department. Some bunk about wanting a starlet's hair to look the same on camera. Then they would go and stare. Two titans battling over a dame with gorgeous red hair. They'd have given anything for a lock of her hair, let alone caress it. And, as men do, their competition made life intolerable for Madeline. One day, they cooked up a ruse for Madeline to take off her hat and let down her hair. Mayer and Thalberg waited with glazed eyes and slack mouths. Madeline took off her hat. The men gasped. She'd cut her hair off. Her head looked like a scrub brush. Nothing but bristles. They were real sorry about it. Anyway, she left Metro. She had plenty of dough socked away. Madeline enrolled in college. She studied the classics, and after she graduated, she went back to screenwriting. She had a short-term contract at Columbia before she came to Minerva. I've often found out here that the biographical story puts the plots on the screen in the shade. You know what I mean, Lou?
1: Smitty had to get back to the studio. On Sundays, I don't go to church. I go to the pictures. But today, I felt too antsy to sit in the dark. I had Smitty drop me off by the Forever Cemetery. I'd walk back to get my car, which was parked by my office on Highland Avenue. I strolled along the cemetery path, and thanks to the espadrilles, my footsteps were quiet. Off to the right, I saw a woman standing in front of a fresh gravesite. It didn't have a headstone yet. The woman placed a large bouquet of flowers on top. I stopped for a minute and watched her. She was talking to the recently deceased, but I couldn't hear what she said. She was dressed in black. She wore a wide-brimmed black hat and veil, a long black dress, black shawl, black gloves. I felt cold looking at her. She seemed lonely, and the feeling crept over me. Then I realized she was standing in front of David Breyer's grave. I had seen photographs in the newspaper from his funeral. That's probably why I stopped in the first place, because it looked familiar. I decided to go over and say something even if it was one of those awkward clichés about grief people trade like business cards. My like condolences. Sympathy for your loss. I kept my eyes on her as I moved closer. Her head was down. She didn't see me. She looked like a crow resting on a branch in the shade. Then a couple of mourners came forward from the other direction. They squabbled about the cost of a wreath. The woman standing in front of Briar's grave lifted her head. I couldn't see her face behind the black veil, but I could feel her eyes on me. She must have guessed that I had a bead on her, that I was coming over to talk, or my expression told her so. She turned around and the long skirt swooshed in the air. She headed for the street. I followed on the path. The woman moved fast and jumped into a car parked at the curb. I watched the car until it turned a corner. Then I went back to Briar's grave. Family member? An old flame? Former star? I picked up the bouquet she had left and saw a note on the florist's card. I'm sorry. That's all she wrote. The handwriting on the card was identical to the envelope that Briar had received. I opened my purse and took out the envelope Irene gave me for comparison. The Briar House was on Spalding Drive in Beverly Hills. The S in Spalding was the same as the S in Sorry. It reminded me of a treble clef, like you would find on sheet music. The S had a swirl at the bottom. The handwriting was slanted unsteady, just as Vera had noted when I was invited to Spalding Avenue for tea. Perhaps the woman in black was a former lover who now felt remorse. I've pointed my feet toward Highland Avenue and left the dead to mind their own business. After I got my car, I went home and crawled into bed. When I woke up, the room was dark. I knew I had slept too long. I went to the kitchen for a glass of water. While I emptied the glass, I saw the glow of a cigarette in the living room. Someone was sitting in the orange chair by the window. My purse was on the kitchen table. I tried to pretend I hadn't seen the burning cigarette and turned my head. I reached into my purse for Bezark. I tucked Bezark behind my back and walked into the living room. I faced the chair and said, I wasn't expecting a guest. I knew who it was before he switched on the lamp.
3: Hiya, babe. Too late to pay a call? I wanted to thank you for the other night. Ah, you look so pretty when you're asleep. You got anything to nibble on? (laughs) No. How about fixing us a couple drinks?
1: With one hand?
3: Put the gun down, Lou. I already took the bullets out. Come on, be nice. Pour out some of the good stuff.
0: Here's
1: your drink.
3: Ah, stingy poor.
1: Small drinks are for Sundays. Isn't that what you said?
3: Didn't expect you to quote me.
1: Did you think I'd turn dewy-eyed and fall into your arms?
3: I see you got the flowers I sent.
1: Yeah, they stink. Almost as bad as you.
3: (laughs) Oh, okay, tough guy. You can't admit I did you some good.
1: Yeah. Some good. Like a dose of the salts.
3: <laughs>
1: I know what you did to Madeline.
3: Nobody's gonna listen to you. You're just a shanty Irish coos-playing detective. You don't even wear real shoes. Your word means Zippo.
1: You son of a...
3: Better learn to control your temper, baby. Might get you in trouble. Wind up in the loony bin. Why don't we just be friends? I know what gets you started.
1: I swear to God, I'm gonna get you, Winston. If it's... It's... (laughs) Ha,
3: ha, ha. You're feeling it, baby?
1: It hit me just like that. I started to wobble. My bones turned to jelly. My vision blurred. I was behind the eight ball. God only knew what he would do to me when I passed out.
3: It was a 50-50 chance, Lou. Two glasses on the table. Somehow I figured you'd go for the smaller one. Women are like that. Trained like that. Give the man the bigger one. Take the smaller one. I put the knockout drops in the small glass. And I was right.
1: I did the only thing I could think of. I went down the hall to the bathroom. And I locked the door behind me. I opened the window, then I climbed into the top, curled up in a ball. Then I pulled the shower curtain over with just enough room to hide.
3: I'm good at breaking locks, you know. Do you want me to get rough?
1: Once again, I swam into the
3: darkness. Night, Jonesy. Great job on that shot this morning. You really nailed it. Hello, Cyril. How are things? Winston, what are you doing here? Tying up loose ends. Am I next on your list? What list is that? Your kill list. Have you flipped your lid? I haven't killed anyone. I'm the last one who knows what you did on the night boat.
1: You're not the last one who you knows, Cyril. Don't move, Winston.
3: Ah, look who it is. Figure you crawled into a ditch. Or took a ride to the boneyard.
1: I never left the house last night. I was hiding in the tub. You're big, but not too bright. Here's another surprise. Beezark is loaded this time.
3: Oh, ain't that cute. She named her widow gun like it was a dolly.
1: You keep talking. They'll give me the keys to the city for smoking a cheap doom merchant like you.
4: She has plenty of backup this time, you rat. Face it, Winston. You're all washed up. I won't have any trouble in divorce court. Should have gotten free a long time ago. You won't be able to talk your way out of this one. The headlines will be merciless. I'm gonna make sure you die in prison.
0: I can't wait that long. Leave me alone with the man. Madeline?
5: What's left of her?
0: Leave me alone with the
5: man. Why, Cyril?
1: He didn't attack you. He didn't try to stop them. I can't believe Winston told the truth for once. He didn't kill anyone. You did.
0: They made me do it. Go. Leave me with them. You
1: can't kill a man for being a coward. Beat it, Cyril.
5: How do I know?
1: Are you sick? Take a powder.
3: You're crazy if you think I'm going to stand here and listen to a bunch of squawking harpies.
1: Don't move. Madeline appeared out of the shadows. No one expected her. Dressed head to toe in black, she was the woman I had seen yesterday in the cemetery. How did she do it? Did she give them drugs that caused paralysis then death? She walked over to Winston. He wore a smirk on his face. It wouldn't protect him. Madeline took off her black hat and veil. She unbuttoned the black dress and let it fall to the floor. She stood there, naked, in front of him. And stared him in the eye. <sighs> Madeline was a vision in green. Her skin was dried in scales, the color of malachite, agate, emerald. Her eyes were burnished chalcedony. Madeline's green hair pulsed. It bounced even when she was still. Long coils of hair sprung from her head and collided with a thud that sounded like prize fighters pounding muscle. She dared her quarry to look. Madeline's vulcanized gaze pinned him down on the floor of the stage. Winston's face crumpled in horror. What did he see? If I had to guess, I'd say he went beyond Madeline's verdant glare. He saw the true monster. Himself.
3: No. No, no. I, I, I'll give you anything you want. I got a million bucks socked away. T- t- take it all. Yes.
0: I will take it all. Your life. <coughs> 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 no! <coughs> <coughs> He did this to me. First he took my body. Then he put me in that clinic. And they turned me into this. Who would listen to anything I say?
1: (gasps) (sighs) Madeline collapsed on the floor. We circled around her. We looked at her and wept. Irene and Smitty reached down and took Madeline's arms. Poppy and Gina took her by the legs Kate took her by the middle on one side and I took the other We carried Madeline to the nurse's station (laughs) We filled basins with cool water We washed her with soft cloths Then we rubbed lanolin cream into Madeline's rough skin We whispered words of comfort we spoke in an old tongue. Our voices rose in lamentation over her body. Madeline had sent the letters to Spalding Drive. She wrote to tell Briar about what happened on the nightboat. She asked her boss for help and when she hadn't heard from him, she waited for him outside his office. She didn't know the sight of her would prove fatal. Madeleine was sorry the Briar was dead, but then she figured she would try it on the men who raped her and then locked her away in the clinic. After she finished with the men in Minerva, she planned to visit the doctors in Hopewell. Wax disfigured her with Paris green, a powerful arsenic. They added acids and chemicals to keep her quiet. Winston was just one more case of a high powered Hollywood man who keeled over from working too hard. Nobody was broken up about it. Irene took Madeline home to Beverly Hills. She called in top specialists. Most likely, though, they wouldn't be able to cure the poison. Madeline was dying. Irene had been on the level about taking over and changing things. She had big plans for Minerva Studio. Chief among them, she sat in the big desk in the front office, and she promoted Smitty to head of production, and I was hired to replace Smitty. I changed my tune about working alone. I realized that a Hollywood studio gave a woman backup. Where else could a dame use her noodle and make a lot of dough? On the level.
0: Irene Smithy are here. here to see you.
1: Thanks, Kate. Send them in. Hey, Lou. How are you settling in? Everything's swell. What can I do for you?
4: Uh, we came to do for you a little welcome pl- present. I scheduled a manicure for you after lunch. Rosie, for makeup, will do your nails here. It's just one of the perks. We have it here at Minerva.
5: You can get them done in that cantaloupe polish. I know you're crazy for it. How'd you know? I got eyes. We have something else for you, Lou. Here.
1: Open it. Say! Red suede pumps! Oh, am I fancy now, or what?
4: I... Welcome to the
0: club.
1: Let's get to work.
0: Thanks for listening. Hollywood Medusa is a Sassmouth Dames production, written and directed by Mega McGurk. Lou Mulrainey is played by Clara Higgins. Smitty Betty Smith is played by Olympia Kiriaku. Irene Breyer is played by M. Sean. Poppy Jordan is played by Savannah Monroe. Gina Gallo is played by Renee Smith. Kate Lawler is played by Laura Mawson. Winston Montgomery is played by Patrick McGurk. Cyril Hardwick is played by Peter Bryant. Reggie Fitz is played by Shane McCormick. Madeline Stone is played by Megan McGurk. Art Design by Mott Collins. Sound editing and special effects by Tom O'Mahoney.
3: Down in the pool room, some of the gang were talking to gals they knew. Women are all the same,
0: said Joe. One dizzy bird said, pal, ain't you heard the story of true Blue Lou? Listen and got an earful ball Say she was a dame in love with a guy. She stuck to him but didn't know why. Everyone blamed her. Still they all named her true blue blue.